In a few minutes, we're going to observe together the Lord's Supper when we will pass the elements that are there on the table before me. We'll pass those elements, the bread and the cup, and we'll partake of communion together. You don't need to turn to it, but let me remind you of the passage. I'm going to quote from it again in a few minutes, but in 1 Corinthians 11, in verses 23 through 26, we're going to be in John's Gospel in chapter 19 in just a moment. But let me remind you of what this passage tells us, what, what Paul writes of in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, concerning the Lord's Supper in which he reminds us that according to Christ, we are to observe this communion, this ordinance, the Lord's Supper, in remembrance of Christ. And specifically, we are to remember his death. His sacrifice for sin is what we are to remember as we partake of the elements in a few minutes. In his own words, Jesus points to his crucifixion as the central point of the plan of salvation. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Paul writes, verse 23 in 1 Corinthians 11, just listen to it, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul writes in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This morning, we're going to take part in communion to remember what Christ did for us on the cross. And as we do, we proclaim his death until he comes. In John chapter 19 and verses 17 through 30, we have the account of Christ's crucifixion and death to help us remember. We're going to go there. Would you go there with me? John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we will begin in verse 17 this morning. This is what we are to remember, and this is what we are to proclaim as we partake of communion, and this is what we are to proclaim to the world as we live for Christ with our lives, lives committed to serving our risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us, because of what we will be reminded of by this passage so let's look at John 19, beginning in verse 16, where at the end of our study last week, we saw that Pilate had delivered Jesus over to the Jewish authorities to be crucified. And as we read the text last time, and we read the text this morning, let it remind you, let the text here help you be prepared. Let it prepare you for the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. Let this challenge and encourage you to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. John 19, verse 16. At the end of verse 16, it says, So they took Jesus after Pilate had turned Jesus over to the Jewish authorities to be crucified. So they took Jesus, says verse 16. And verse 17 says, And, when, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And verse 23 tells us that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved, the, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And verse 28 says that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. John tells us in verse 17 that Jesus bore his own cross. It was customary for a condemned prisoner to carry all or even part of his own cross on which he would be crucified. John does not tell us what we learn from the other gospel writers that Jesus had to be relieved of the burden of carrying his own cross, likely because he was exhausted from the brutal flogging he had received before this. So John doesn't go into great detail about the journey with the cross, but he does emphasize, and I think his purpose in not sharing that Jesus did have to give up the cross to be carried by someone else at some point, he doesn't go into that detail necessarily because he wants to point to Jesus carrying his own cross. I think the emphasis here is that Jesus bore the cross. Someone else did not carry it. Not, he didn't carry it the whole way himself, but he did carry it for a time. He carried it as far as he could, humanly speaking. He carried his own cross. And in this fact that Jesus did carry his own cross, at least for a time, there is a reminder here that Jesus alone accomplished salvation for sinners. He is the one who hung on the cross. 
He is the one who suffered and died. And yes, he carried the cross. And he alone accomplishes salvation for sinners. We also learn from verse 17 that the place where Jesus would be crucified was called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Some think this place was a hill that looked like, that kind of took the shape of a skull. We don't know that for sure. But John then moves to the crucifixion itself. And the crucifixion was a brutal and horrible method of execution. It was a form of capital punishment reserved for the very worst of criminals. In fact, Jesus was not crucified alone. Verse 18 says, There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die. Author and commentator A. Revel describes the brutality of it this way, saying that crucifixion, quote, represented the acme of the torturer's art. Atrocious physical suffering, length of torment, ignominy, the effect on the crowd gathered to witness the long agony of the crucified. Nothing could be more horrible than the sight of this living body, breathing, seeing, hearing, still able to feel, and yet reduced to the state of a corpse by forced immobility and absolute helplessness. We cannot even say that the crucified person writhed in agony, for it was impossible for him to move. Stripped of his clothing, unable even to brush away the flies which fell upon his wounded flesh, already lacerated by the preliminary scourging, exposed to the insults and curses of people who can always find some sickening pleasure in the sight of the torturers of others. A feeling which is increased and not diminished by the sight of pain. The cross represented a miserable humanity reduced to the last degree of impotence, suffering, and degradation. The penalty of crucifixion combined all that the most ardent tormentor could desire, torture, the pillory, degradation, and certain death distilled slowly, drop by drop. It was an ideal form of torture. And this, this, Jesus yielded himself to. As the Father poured out his own wrath on his own Son. For the sins, not of his Son, but of mankind. Three were crucified that day. Only one was without sin. And then John tells us in verse 19 that Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the king of the Jews. Now, of course, this angered the Jews, which was Pilate's intent. And we see it because of what we're told in verse 20, that many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. Obviously, Pilate wanted people to read this. And he wanted to anger the Jews. So many were reading this, and in turn, in verse 21, which points out Pilate's inscription, it had its desired effect. Angered at the words, King of the Jews, which is what they had accused Jesus of claiming for himself, they they went to Pilate. They want this inscription changed. Of course, Pilate refuses. The Jewish authorities have bullied and pressured him enough. He's had enough of them. He has to send this man that he has already declared to be innocent, send this man to his crucifixion, his death, because of their demands. So he's going to mock the Jews. He's going to get the last word, Pilate. And here, like before, when dealing with the Jews, the Pilate takes this jab at them for all the frustration they'd caused him as he declared Jesus innocent while they cried for his crucifixion, but also, as before, while Pilate is taking this jab at the Jewish authorities, John is pointing to the title. And John points to the title that Pilate inscribed or had inscribed, and John points to it for another reason. He's not trying to anger anyone. He's trying to point to the truth. John is pointing to the title Pilate had inscribed as a reminder of Jesus' true kingship and Jesus' true authority. Jesus truly is King of kings and Lord of lords. And whether Pilate knew or not what he was doing, it was very true. Next, John points to the soldiers who were taking Jesus' garments to divide them among themselves. It was, of course, customary for those soldiers who performed the execution to divide the garments of the one executed. A little perk. But they did not divide the tunic. This they cast lots for so as not to destroy this valuable piece of fabric, a seamless garment. And in verse 24, John points out that this was to fulfill the scriptures. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, and this is a quote from Psalm 22:18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And in fact, this is a it's a timely reminder, I think. A timely reminder from John that God is in control of these events. These prophetic words spoken about Jesus Christ so many years before. A reminder that as one fulfilled prophecy after another occurs, that God is in control. God is accomplishing his purposes here. It is God who is setting the order of these events. Yes, sinful men are perpetrating a heinous crime against a sinless man, but it is God who is ordering the, the events of sinless man and using them for his good purposes. 
Next, we see that Jesus was not completely abandoned at his death. Verse 25 tells us that there were four women there. And in verse 26, John discreetly points to himself without using his own name. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary and the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. Four women. Four women of faith. Four believing women standing near the foot of the cross. And verses 26 and 27 say that when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from the from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now we might read that and think that it's a bit strange here that Jesus gives the care of his own mother to John instead of to his own brothers. But it seems that even Jesus' own brothers did not have faith in him until after his resurrection. But even as Jesus suffers at the very end of his life, he's concerned for his mother. And we have here, I believe, a reminder of his care for mankind. Jesus, at the very end of his suffering, at the end of his life, he isn't thinking about himself. He's thinking about others. And then in verse 28, John once again points to a fulfillment of Scripture. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. This fulfillment of Scripture is a demonstration that Jesus is still in command. I mean, think of it. God is in control. Jesus is a willing sacrifice. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 69, 21, verse 21 in Psalm 69 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And so verses 29 and 30 tell us in our, in our text here in John 19, A jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head. And gave up his spirit. This sour wine is here for the sake of those being crucified. It would in some small measure ease the final suffering of the one crucified. In the gospel accounts of Matthew and Mark, we're told that earlier Jesus had refused this sour wine. He had not partaken of it when offered. And again, I think it's a reminder that he is in control. He will not suffer with his mental faculties numbed. He will suffer. He will suffer willingly. And so after they put the sour wine, this wine-soaked sponge to his mouth, he utters, his last words. He's parched. He can barely say, I thirst. But to fulfill Scripture, he takes the sour wine and then, after having his lips wet and his tongue loosened, he says, 
it is finished. And once again, with a pointer to the fact that Jesus was in control right up to and including his death. John says, there's an interesting thing here, John says. He says, Jesus gave up his spirit. Jesus gave up his spirit. We, we never speak of someone dying in those kinds of terms, do we? We don't ever say they gave up their spirit. We say they passed away. But Jesus didn't pass away like we think of death. Jesus was in control to the very end. John tells us this, I think, because Jesus obviously is in control, and he even has control of when his death occurs. I don't believe Jesus died in the way that we think of death, in that he could no longer live, as in he died because he couldn't live any longer. No, Jesus gave up his spirit. And he did so at the appointed time by the Father. And only then did he die. How timely that we arrive at this passage this morning in John's Gospel on this first Sunday of the month when we traditionally observe the Lord's Supper. And so with this fresh reminder of what Jesus endured for sinners, let's observe the Lord's Supper together. And let's do this in remembrance of Christ. And let's so proclaim the Lord's death with our lives until he comes.